It's Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. And because of that love of comics and politics, um, Black Mass Studios is one of the publishers that we're huge fans of on this site. And we get to have one of its writers uh, talking to us tonight. But before we do our intro for him, I want to kick it over to my co-host, Alana. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I've been getting to catch up on lots of comics since Free Comic Book Day. Um, which I think we've all survived more or less intact. And <laughs> hopefully we've made a point of gifting on the comics that we believe our friends and neighbors and children of all ages may wish to enjoy by passing it along to those who need them. Yes, yes, that's always a great thing. And um, as always, uh, you know, huge props go out to all the stores out there that host Free Comic Book Day. Um, I mean, it's a cost to them to actually host all that and, make that happen. So hopefully folks went out and enjoyed their day, but also bought something from all the stores. Um, I, I actually fell short. I usually do like six show or six stores in the day. And I only went to like four this year. I felt like I was a slacker. Jesus Christ. Uh, waiting in the line <laughs> at Forbidden Planet, which was a very well-managed and efficient line, but was nevertheless a line was enough of a uh, excursion for me that day. I had a fun time talking to various people. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, speaking of Forbidden uh, Planet, yes. Well, we've got a guest, right? New York's largest, maybe largest comic book store. We have a guest tonight. Yes, it's a a well-known comic shop. Uh, So our guest tonight, Matthew Rosenberg. uh, He was born and raised in New York City. Uh, He's the son, nephew, and brother of writers. He naturally spent the first ten years of professional life trying to avoid that same fate as them years of directing music videos, managing a print shop, touring the world, managing bands, working at a comic shop, uh, which is a hell of a fun time, and co-owning a small indie record label. The fates have finally left him two choices, write comics professionally or starve to death trying. Uh, armed only with his freakish knowledge of all things comic books and a complete lack of desire to do anything else, he now finds himself a comic writer. He's done some fantastic series. Uh, if you haven't read it, um, We Can Never Go Home and uh, Four Kids Walking in a Bank are two of the excellent series from Black Mass Studios. And it's primarily while we're here uh, talking, but he's also doing some work for Marvel uh, as writing the Civil War II Kingpin tie-in uh, for their big event coming up this summer. So, welcome, Matthew. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I did all that stuff that you talked about. And I still <laughs> work at Forbidden Planet. So, that is uh, where we very first met, actually. Yes, that is true. That is true. I, I still, uh, yeah, hello. I, uh, I still at Forbidden Planet. Um, it's not like the artsiest comic book store, but it's the most diverse one I've been in in New York when it comes to the staff and the attendance and everything and um yeah always have sure. a good time it's a i'm i'm uh i'm a new yorker born and raised so i have a soft spot for all of the uh the great shops jhu and midtown and st mark's and bergen street and everyone else but uh forbidden planet is a, a really cool special store that uh i worked at for a couple of years as did uh Tyler, who draws Fork is Walking on Night. He worked there for a bunch of years. So, How long do I know him? Uh, <laughs> he was in the basement a lot. Uh, oh, you didn't let the artist out of the basement. I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, he knew how to do things, so that, that's really important there. If all you can do is talk about comics, they'll stick you on the floor, which is me. But if you can, like, draw things and design things, they'll, they steal you away and, and, uh, and find other uses for you. So. 
uh, yeah, he, I mean, he came up for air every once in a while, but he's he's no longer there either. Being, uh, I'm sure he is sorely missed, which I'm sure I am not. But <laughs> <laughs> I I worked at a comic shop for six years, seven years, somewhere around there. I gotta admit, I miss it a little bit. It's it's one where you always came out with interesting stories, and it's a uh, it was a fun time. I like. I, I I do absolutely miss it. Would go back and do it in like two seconds if I could. True oh, yeah. story. I, mean, I think. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> True story. I was. Uh, I interviewed to work at St. Mark's Comics right when I graduated from college, and the the head of the store said to me, "Look, you know we only pay ten fifty an hour, and that's like a training rate. You, I, I'll hire you, but you don't want to work here." And I, I took him at his word. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there like, you go. I think that's illegal. I don't think that that's within the labor law. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I made minimum wage and I ran the damn store. Like, I was the only employee for the second store I was at. And, oh, God, was that just a, a labor of love. But I was in college, so I, you know, was eating ramen every night. Yeah. Uh, well, I ended up working at Barnes & Noble <laughs> instead. But anyway... Sorry, Matt. What, you, what were you gonna say? Oh, I was just gonna say that uh, I really, I really love working in the shop too. I, I, I think there's like selling people on books that you care about and getting them excited about them is like I think one of the one of the purer joys in the world is like just turning someone onto a really cool book or a really something that, and I think comics especially because comics readership is so small that like. If you get 10 or 15 people excited about a book, like, that's a noticeable percentage for a lot of books. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, 0.5% of the readership of some books. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, there's something really nice about about hand-selling books, and, and that's really fun. But yeah. uh, working at a comic shop is also really hard and doesn't pay well. So. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, say we were the as evangelists on the show. I mean, that's like why we do this as well is for that same reason. And yeah. it's one of the reasons you're here today is because Brett and I are completely excited about four kids. Um, like I, I was ecstatic when I finished reading it and like made various like flailing gestures and tried to shove it in front of my dad is pretty much how that happened. So. Well, thank you. I'm I'm pretty excited about it too, I guess. For those who don't know, like, how would you describe the series? I, I feel like neither of us are going to do it great justice diving um, into it. It's funny because I spent, uh, with my previous book, We Can Never Go Home, I spent so much time sort of skirting around saying the kind of really obvious things that the book was because, like, uh, I wear a lot of my influences on my sleeve in a lot of ways, and as a writer I sort of, like, you know, you're sort of told not to do that, to sort of not acknowledge the the stuff that influences you, and I, I just think that's sort of ridiculous, and uh, I try and own it, but when I when We Can Ever Wrong came out, I spent a lot of time, like, trying to avoid talking about certain things and saying certain words and whatever, and with four kids, I think I sort of gave that up, so I realized the other day that when people were asking me what it's about, I just said it's about four kids who rob a bank, and, like... <laughs> Uh, I, I like having a description of the book that is shorter than the actual title of the book. I think <laughs> there's, uh, there's something poetically <laughs> wonderful about that. 
But, well, uh, I loved the I promotional mean, material, so they describe it as Quentin Tarantino by way of the Goonies, was, I believe, a quote from one of the critics. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I believe that is a quote from uh, the wonderfully kind Kieran Gillen. Oh, that's right. And that's he said, it. it said, it's that, but, and also good, which is a wonderful yeah. touch. Um, yeah. The, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... You know, I say to people, it's it's uh, it's either a moderately funny crime story about children, or it's an incredibly dark comedy about a childhood adventure, um, depending on what you want. So, uh, I think that's sort of the the you get the tone from that. It's either like you know, uh, initially when when me and Tyler started working on the book, we wanted it to be just a straight comedy, and. Uh, Comedy is really, really hard. Uh, all those people who say comedy is hard were definitely right. And I don't sort of trust my sense of humor enough to to be compelling for other people. So partway through making the book, we were just like, okay, I think we need this to be more of a crime story and more of a caper and that kind of stuff. So, so it is this middle point of like just total uh, farcical comedy and actual like crime thriller about children so that's I guess how I describe the book in the really long way but but the short way is again for children who rob a bank (laughs) Uh, how did the series actually come about like uh, um, actually we'll back up a little bit so one of the questions we always like to ask uh, for a guest kind of starting off early is how you actually got to being a professional comic book writer like you know you worked in a comic book shop but you know (laughs) How did you get through all that point to where you are now? Um, yeah, uh, like you uh, said in my intro, uh, my whole family are writers. Uh, my parents are both writers, and my brother is a writer. Um, and so I spent a lot of time trying to not be a writer. And uh, I did a lot of other stuff. I worked in music for a long time. But uh, at a certain point, I just really decided that if I was going to do something that I could really be proud of and something that I really was passionate about, it probably wasn't going to be music anymore. Uh, and I've been a comic fan my whole life. And so I decided to try and be a comic writer uh, like five years ago. Um, I guess that's about right, four or five, five years ago. And uh, my buddy Patrick is was sort of in the same boat, um, he it was a is a musician and was a huge comic fan and we just talked about comics all the time. I said we should try and write comics together. Uh so we started to try and do that and we were really terrible at it and we came up with a lot of really good ideas with really bad execution and um spent a lot of time struggling and I had a day job that I sort of hated. It was taking up too much of my time so that I couldn't focus on writing, and I decided to just quit my decent-paying day job and work in a comic book store so I could be around comics more and sort of inspired by them more and uh, just have a feel for, you know, what people were into and what what people, what was missing from shelves in a way. And so uh, I did that and worked at Forbidden Planet for two years, I guess, while I was just beginning to get work. And... um I worked in music, like I said, so, <laughs> excuse me, uh, I did a, someone from 
I guess it's Sony Records. I'm a little unclear on how I was found, but someone from uh, Sony Records reached out to me because they had a music hybrid project and they wanted to talk to me who would have a basic understanding of what they were talking about and sort of help them figure out if it makes sense. And I went out and had some meetings and went to some offices. And at the end of that, that was uh, they offered me the chance to write the book, and that was my first uh, professional gig, which was writing uh, the comic 12 Reasons to Die, which was a Ghostface killer RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan co-written comic six-issue miniseries that went along with Ghost's album of the same title. And that sort of got my foot in the door of being a professional comic writer. And from there, it's been clawing and struggling to get more work. And uh, now it's going okay. People, Enough people have uh, think what I do is okay that I uh, have some work. So that's nice. So uh, so it's a lot of uh, weird coincidences and luck and uh, trying really hard to do something and doing it all the wrong ways before you figure out how to do it okay. How did you guys come up for the idea for uh, four kids? Um, yeah, it's a uh, well. I used to when me and Tyler both worked together. Uh, I used to bounce all my sort of ideas and pitches off of him, and I would just be like, you know, do you think this is cool? Do you think this would work? Um, Tyler's just like incredibly smart about comics and storytelling, and has sort of a great sensibility for visualizing how things would appear on a page. Um, but more than that, he has a, I think a sensibility that's pretty similar to mine. And so I was sort of bouncing all this stuff off him all the time. And I would just say, you know, it's about, you know, robots who are bounty hunters or, you know, <laughs> it's about a sea monster who falls in love with a dolphin or just, you know, like whatever dumb idea I'd come up with that day. And he would just sort of always just be like, no, that's terrible. That's terrible. And, uh, I remember I was just like, yeah, I want to do like a comedy about little kids going on a crime spree. And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, like, I want to do like a really absurd sort of comedy, like a kind of like, you know, Wes Anderson-ish sort of uh, with Stillman, this big influence of mine. And, um, mm. you know, just a, just like a, a real, a real, funny character driven comedy about, about little kids who are criminals. And uh it's like he was just really intrigued by that and he sort of you know, nothing nothing happened for a day or a day or two or maybe a week and then a week later he was like, What are you doing with that? And I was like, I don't know, it's just something I said and he was like, Well I was thinking it could be like this and we just sort of talked about it all the time and uh he was actually a senior at a SVA at the time, School of Visual Arts in New York, and uh, in the illustration program, or I, I forget the sequential narrative program. I don't know what, the, what it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he went to school for comics, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, he he was like maybe he was like you know I have to do a comic for my uh, my senior thesis. He was a his professor was David Mazzucchelli, and who was a huge influence on me and him. And he was like, I have to do a project for my senior thesis. Like, maybe we could do an issue of the, you know, the kids doing crime book. And so I wrote a script for him, and that's 
it's not exactly, but it's roughly the first issue of the book. Oh wow! Um, how, how long yeah. ago was this? Uh, it was two and a half years ago. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So like we uh, we had a version of it and it went around to publishers and a bunch of publishers were sort of interested and then when we sort of laid out what happens in the book a little bit, a bunch of publishers sort of reacted pretty poorly and were not into it and a couple sort of kept going with it but Tyler Tyler had a bunch of work coming up and he was doing a lot of stuff advice and uh, uh, he's the anchor on Lazarus at Image so that was like oh. keeping him pretty busy and um, that's a really well inked book yeah it is a really well inked book um, and uh, I, I had We Can Ever Go Home which was sort of becoming a very intense book to sort of handle and manage because uh I do a lot of sort of like over the top kind of press and marketing stuff for that book. So uh, we sort of backburnered for kids for a while. And then when We Can Never Go Home was wrapping, I was like, you know, let's, let's actually take it out. And a bunch of publishers, We Can Never Go Home did well enough that a bunch of publishers were much more interested in our weird idea the second time around. And uh, mm-hmm. I had a great experience at Black Mask and with We Can Never Go Home and, uh, decided to go with them. So that is how the book came to be and how it came to be where it is. I really love the cast and how you conjured the characters through the game and the beginning of the book. And it's the kind of thing that is a, it's, you know, it's clearly a device, but it it works and it feels so right in the milieu of them being kids playing a game. Um, I don't Mm. think it counts as a spoiler to say that the kids are introduced uh, while they're playing a game in the Dungeons and Dragons, um, and it, it it comes off even better than it sounds. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the big things, one of the big themes in the book is sort of that the uh, the kids, uh, well, they're 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 sort of in this. Their dynamic is very. I mean, it's not. I don't know how to say it. They're it's very much them against the world in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. The only people they sort of rely on and trust are each other, and they're just sort of bored, <laughs> and like they're just uh, they're just these bored kids who only care about and trust each other. And they're young; they're eleven and twelve, and they we wanted to show that they really get lost in their imaginations pretty quickly and pretty easily. The fantasy worlds for them, you know, the stuff we all grew up doing, reading comic books and playing video games and playing D and D and playing with toys, like, we all envision those worlds, and for these kids, like, they're still very much, those worlds are very real and vivid to them. Um, and that's sort of a, a theme of the book, is that, is that they, uh, they don't separate reality from imagination in the same way that the other characters in the book do. And so that sort of will keep popping up, but we sort of wanted to come out swinging with that idea, so we, uh, yeah, we open with them in a, uh, a dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons battle gone horribly wrong, um, and that is a uh, yeah. A lot of a lot of people seem to react to it. We got a uh, early on. We both, me and Tyler, I think both had real serious thoughts because uh, Tyler's very versatile in his art, and so he draws the opening very differently than the rest of the book looks. Mm-hmm. And it is a, uh, I mean, it is swords and elves and 
dragon stuff. And <laughs> that's the first six pages of the book. And so we don't want people, you know, I see a lot of people pick it up and look at it from the beginning and be very confused when they get to page seven and it's just a completely different story. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a choice that I, uh, I'm pretty happy that it opens that way now. Yeah, we were wondering what version of D&D. <laughs> it's not actually a direct... <laughs> Not actually a direct analog, I realized, but Brett actually messaged me to ask that question, and I said I'd ask you, but it's not actually yeah, one of, you want the specific. It's not actually any of them. It's, yeah, it's not actually a D&D. What's funny is that uh, I, uh, when I was growing up, I was not really a D&D guy, and I never became a D&D guy. I was much more uh, into Warhammer. Oh, Hell yeah. So, uh, I worked for GW. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, um, I spent six months working for him. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I was a huge Warhammer kid growing up, and a bunch of my really close friends were. And so D&D, to me, always felt uh, like basic. And I know it's not at all, oh, but it, to me, totally <laughs> I know it's blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's just, uh, I, I, I liked, I don't trust anyone's imagination enough that, that I think I would have fun in D&D but I trust that I could have fun waging a war of, you know, base Marines or whatever. So my, my take on D&D when I sent in the script, Tyler was like, this is not <laughs> real D&D. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I know it's not, but, you know, we'll flub it. Yeah, so, uh, like people uh, probably aren't being too big, of pet, too big of a pedant against you because you're a dude, so they don't question whether or not you might be correct or wrong about these matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I don't, I don't have to deal with the... Uh, the fake geek dude um, demographic um, coming at me. I don't have to deal with uh, people coming at me for being a fake geek dude, but I don't actually play D&D, so, you know, it is on the speaking page. Speaking of which, Raw. I mean, you're, you, I, as much as there's a protagonist at this point, even though this is like a teen book, it still seems very much like protagonist is Paige, and she's just a wonderful mm-hmm. creation. Uh, but I have to say the character who, like, I just most fell for was Burger. I You don't mm-hmm. I when I was, I, I, all three of us I presumably are Jewish, and um, when I was a kid in elementary school I went to Jewish private school uh, for elementary school before I ran away screaming because it was hell, um, and there are not like the range of Jewish characters that you see in in, in in media don't actually really encompass the true variety of of various types of people very often, so it was great to see this like completely foul mouthed and like kind of like disgusting and like the opposite of like socially awkward in the opposite ways of Woody Allen sort of a character. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, uh, I went to a private Catholic school in New York and there was a, uh, um, initially when I designed burger, he was based on, one of my childhood best friends who I'm still actually really, really good friends with. And I wrote the script with him in mind. And then partway through, I realized that like, as much as I love him, uh, I needed to sort of amp everything up. And the more I, (laughs) the more I made him this sort of like foul mouthed kind of like wrong headed in every choice, kind of annoying person. I realized that I, think I was writing myself as an 11 year old rather than I my friend. I sensed this. I sensed this and I do not know you personally well at all. So congratulations. Cause yeah. 
I just yeah, felt it's, that. Uh, it's <laughs> funny because I had, you know, people keep being like, you know, were you, you know, who do you identify with and, and everything. And, and like someone asked me and Tyler the other day, they said, you know, are you, you know, who do you identify with? And we both answered. We were both like, well, we wish we were Paige, but Tyler was like, I'm very much stretched. Like I'm just like this sort of quiet, sweet one. And he very much is in a lot of ways. Like I didn't know Tyler when he was a baby, but he, uh, you know, he's a, he's a very sort of mild mannered and very sweet dude. And, uh, you know, I I I wrote Paige to be the person I wish I was when I was 11, and I wrote Burger as the person I probably was when I was 11. <laughs> and uh, there's a pretty big difference between those two, and that was a very stark realization for me, like, right before we finished the first issue, where I was like, oh, man, I thought I was one character, and I am the other. And well, I, is, definitely, uh, I, de- I definitely feel it. Oh, my God. And speaking of, like, bi- bi- autobiographicalness, I felt this comic feels – so New York to me, but it feels like it feels like this like one of the Long Island towns to me, honestly. Although hmm. perhaps it's some other out, outer 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 borough enclave. Yeah. Where, where is it in your mind? I think this is Glencove, personally. Although there's no Italians. Uh, um, it's funny. I uh, I don't have a specific place. I'm sure Tyler's from Buffalo, and I'm sure he would tell you that it's Buffalo. But uh, I don't think it's Buffalo. The, it's too dense. The, thing funny to me, yeah. the funny thing to me is that uh, both in this and We Can Never Go Home, it is sort of like suburban, but not like completely remotely suburban. It is it is sort of like, you know, a, a little uh, suburban enclave of a big, they're both sort of feel like a suburban enclave of a big city. And to me, like, I was thinking about why that is because I didn't grow up. I grew up in Manhattan and I was trying to figure out why I write suburban stories. And I think, like, a big thing for me is just just this idea that, like, I don't understand suburban growing up in the South. It's really foreign to me in a lot of ways. Like, I don't I don't know what you do if you can't walk to a bodega when you're me, 15 to get a soda. It's, it's terrible. Like, you don't want to have to know that reality. I mean, I mean, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, I think if I was a suburban writer, I would probably write stories about what it's like to be a kid in a very, very big, intimidating city. But New York isn't that for me. Like, New York isn't a big, intimidating city. And like, you know, Masbeth is, is intimidating because I don't understand, you know, what you're supposed to do at night. I don't know where, how you get around. Like, so like there's just this sort of sense of, of I'm right, I'm kind of trying to explore something that I don't understand in these suburban stories, I guess. But it's also, like, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a sort of New York sensibility because they feel like New York City kids to me in a lot of ways. So I think that they are, <clears throat> as outside of the, uh, the suburban milieu as, as I sort of feel to this day, I think that they feel like they don't fit in. So, If you notice uh, the art starts having um, churches and bars on every corner, then he's doing Buffalo because I grew up in Buffalo, and that's Buffalo. On, on one side of the street okay. would be a church, and the other is a bar, and it's not an that's, exaggeration. That's true in Brooklyn too, though. But, right. I, I, but I feel like it's a little bit – it's not quite dense enough. It's, I, so I feel like maybe it could have been like the, like Richmond Hills, Queens or something, you know? Like Queens, mm. where people have like drive, where they're like the houses aren't necessarily conjoined. 
Yeah. Like some of it has I mean, to be standing. One, one of the things that, like, uh, we did in We Can Never Go Home that we also do in Four Kids, and We Can Never Go Home, we said when the book takes place, but we didn't. We did everything we could to sort of not tie it to that. Like, we mm-hmm. acknowledge that it's 1989, but we're never, it's not over-the-top 1989. People aren't you, calling everything radical, and <laughs> they're not wearing, like, you know, leg warmers, and it's not, like, neons and blazers with rolled-up sleeves. Um but it's just sort of this like vague feeling of 1989-ness that we wanted in there. And, and we never say where it is. We just say it's a small town. And in this, like early on, me and Tyler had a lot of sit-downs where we were like, well, when is it and where is it? And I said, I don't ever want to say when or where it is. So we don't acknowledge a time or mm-hmm. a place. It, it, you know, a lot of people think it's very, <laughs> they said, you know, like someone asked me if they're like, you know, the connected, you can never go home story. And I said, no. And they said, oh, it feels like these could be like their kids. And I was like, oh, that's really strange. <laughs> and in my mind, I think like, no, I think they're in the same time period, which is just sort of like frozen in time Americana. It mm-hmm. doesn't really have a have a location or, or a time per se. It definitely I mean, has that feeling to me with the timelessness to it. Oh, cool. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've had people t- tell me, and we can never go home, less with four kids, because less people have read it and talked about it, but I've had people, we can never go home, say that they love that, and I've had people say, like, absolutely hate it, that it was, it was said in the past, and there's no point, and all this stuff, and it's very uh, sort of interesting reactions to that idea, but I, but I really like it, so it doesn't really matter what other people think. Mm-hmm. Um, so is this this is a mini series now for kids? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, five issues. Oh. So uh, yeah, I uh, I'm a big uh, supporter of the mini series. I'm a big uh, advocate for it. I think. Um, I'm sure my dad didn't invent the uh, expression, but he used to when I was a kid and I would read comics. My dad hated them. He hated that I read comics and he hated uh, the comics I read. And he always used to, like, pick up a issue of Spider-Man or an issue of the Fantastic Four that I was reading at the time. And he would say, it's not a story. And I'd say, of course it's a story. And he'd say, no, a story is you meet a character. The curtain goes up, you meet a character. When the curtain comes down, he's a different person or she's a different person. And, uh, and he said, that's how story works. These people are, there's no difference between Peter Parker 10 years ago and Peter Parker now. They're the same person. Nothing ever affects them. And uh, as much as I don't think that's true, yeah, I, I, I do. I'm a big uh, I'm a big advocate for superhero books and the the way story works in there and, and ongoing series. Uh, I do. I think he did manage to ingrain in me this idea of just like find your ending and the ending is the most important thing. And so we, you know, went into four kids knowing full well what the end was and you know I knew what the end was before I knew what the beginning was and uh, that's sort of true of everything I work on that like hmm. I, I know where I want it to go before I know how it's going to get there with the yeah. with it being miniseries like so We Can Never Go Home was a miniseries but you're also got a, a second volume that's going to be coming out um, you know have you thought through with yeah. four kids of being a second volume as well like is that part of the plan or did you come up with a second um, volume for We Can Never Go Home like after you saw how well it did? No. Uh, the second volume, We Can Never Go Home, I mean, 
Uh, Josh Hood, who drew, draws We Can Never Go Home, and me, I think, had a really awesome time doing the book together. And people really care about it in a very uh, intense way. It's not the most popular book in the world. It's not, you know, whatever. But there are a lot of fans who are very remarkably intense about it, which is really awesome and also unsettling to me and uncomfortable and, and sweet and beautiful. And, um, yeah, no, the end that we can never go home was always going to be the end that we can never go home. Uh, which is funny because a lot of people think it sort of ends with a whimper, uh, which is kind of, I love that. I mean, I love just this idea that it ends like that. Um, whether or not I executed the thing, well is another question, but like I do like the idea of these like these kids with these big dreams and want to take on the world and they just sort of don't <laughs> and like I, it feels very real to me and it, and that's that was always what I wanted it to be, but it uh it did well enough that I think you know me and Josh couldn't help but sit around and sort of imagine where else things could go and what we could do in that world so uh, we decided to do another volume, but I think uh, people are going to be really surprised when they see the next volume. It, it's a it's a pretty different book in a lot of ways, and I, th- I think uh, I think fans of We Can Never Go Home, a lot of them will dig it. But I think you know, I, I think it's the kind of thing where we'll lose some fans, we'll get some new fans, and some people will be very excited. But it's it's definitely not just keeping the same story going. It's a de- very different story. Uh, let me come back. And so with four kids, I mean, early on, people kept asking us, publishers especially, kept saying, like, well, what happens if it does well? And my answer was always, well, me and Tyler will come up with another book. Like, we sort of trust that we have other ideas that people will react to if it does well, which is not exactly what publishers ever want to hear. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, I think... Uh, it's five issues and we're done. We don't have a... We actually sat... Uh, when the book came out last week, was that last week? Um, me and Tyler drove down to uh, Annapolis, Maryland, to do a signing at Third Eye Comics, which is a great shop. And so we yep, were in a car together for... Yeah. Um, we were in a car together for eight hours and sort of just talking about stuff and... Uh, we talked about that idea of just the miniseries and the the finite story. And he asked me, like, do you know what you would do if we absolutely had to do a second volume? And I said, yeah, I think so, and I think it would be this. And he sort of looked at me and he smiled, and he was like, yeah, that would be cool. And I said, yeah, right? I, I said, I think that would be a good follow-up. And he said, yeah. And he said, I don't want to do that. And I said, I don't want it either, but I think it's the best possible way to do it. So, you know, our next thing will not be, you know, I'm hoping that me and Tyler do another book together after this, and it will definitely not be for Kids Volume 2. The end of the book is a very strong end, which is not the same as We Can Never Go Home, but... For, uh, as a writer, like, how does it feel to to know you're putting something out in there and, like, this is the definitive end? Like, is there less pressure for that you feel as far as, like, the story <laughs> that, you know oh, my God, it's really taken off. Now I have to come up with a second arc type of thing where it's just like, no, I'm good at this point. Done is done. No, I mean, you know, it's not... uh, 
it's weird because I think to be a writer, you have to have sort of two, there's two very important traits, and one is like an amazing amount of confidence in what you do and also like an overwhelming amount of self-doubt. And I have both of those in spade depending on the, in spades depending on the uh, uh, given day. So like, I'm really confident that the end of Four Kids is the story I want to tell and the story Tyler wants to tell. And I think it, I think it matters to us a lot. And like, yeah, the book is selling well. (laughs) And so there is a lot of pressure to do more. Um, I mean, even just for like, you know, you never know when, you know, you're going to be a one hit wonder. Not that it's a hit, but like (laughs) that, that should be a nagging at anyone's head in the back of anyone's mind that like, this could be the most popular, the most successful I'm ever am. And like the idea of tapping that is really intense and very scary. But, you know, I put out a book that I feel good about and I, I think I have another one in me that I that if I don't have it now I'll find it. Or, you know, I'll crash and burn and be a a one moderate hit wonder but I'll have put up something that I believed was the best possible version of that. And I think there's something to be said for that. So that's, you know, the game plan at the end of the day is just to put up the best possible book we can and then, you know, hope that we have another. But I, I just don't, I don't see any value in milking something and making it go on longer than it should just for money. Like, mm-hmm. uh, there's other ways to make money. And, like, if I was just concerned about making money, I certainly wouldn't be making comics because that is not a good way to make money. (laughs) Well, you guys are definitely folks who are doing innovative stuff in terms of promotion, which is something that it sucks that creators have to do it. But it's also, like, heartbreaking when I see great stuff doesn't get to survive because it isn't happening by people. So (laughs) it's it's always inspiring when people are trying to do things creatively to make sure their work can get found by readers. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, uh, I said early on in, in trying to be a writer, I said, you know, I don't, I know I can't be the best writer in comics. I, you know, you ask everyone who they're, who the best writer in comics is and you'll get, you know, ask a hundred people, you get a hundred different answers, but, uh, my answer is never going to be me. Certainly. (laughs) But I do think that (laughs) there's a way to be the, uh, you know, there's a quantifiable way to be one of the hardest working writers in comics. And that's what I want to be doing. And I mean, that means a lot of different things, but for me in a lot of ways, like working in a comic shop and understanding everything that goes into selling a comic and someone buying a comic, whether that's, you know, the publisher making it or diamond distributing it or shops carrying it or customers pre-ordering it and going and picking it up every month. Like, I'm very cognizant of that, of every step of that process and everything I do. And so, uh, you know, I do my best to not just, I think a lot of people, a lot of creators, and I I understand it, it makes sense because I could be doing a lot more writing if I was doing a lot less marketing and a lot less press outreach and signings and things, but uh, I want my publishers to know that I support the book 100% and I want, you know, to be accessible to people who read it, whether they like it or not. I want them to be able to find me and talk to me and, 
uh, I want stores who carry my stuff to know that, like, we're going to do everything we can to sell it. I think there's a lot of writers who are doing great work, but they're doing five really good books a month or, you know, three really good books a month. And it's hard because if you have a fan asking your fan to spend, you know, anywhere from 9 to $15 a month on you alone is hard. And asking a retailer to spend however many copies, you know, to order however many copies of just your work alone is, is really hard. So I, I'm, you know, I'm early enough in my career that I think it's, I want to make sure that retailers know that, like, when they carry a book that I wrote, that I'm going to be doing everything I can to put people in the stores to buy it, that I'm going to be doing everything I can to make sure that there aren't just copies sitting on their shelves. And so I spend a lot of time when I should be writing thinking of, like, marketing stuff or doing outreach to people. Um, and, I, and I like that stuff. Uh, when I worked in music, I ran a record label, and music is a, it's a bigger pond and it's, it's a broader field. And so getting getting anyone to notice you is even harder than comics by a lot. And so, you know, if you're doing a record label out of your bedroom, like you have to be innovative and think on your toes and, and try and tell people why this record matters and why they want to pick it up over, you know, the 600 other records released that month. And uh, in comics, it's a smaller pond. So I really want to try and run with that and, you know, do my best to get people to care and notice. And uh seems to be going well. <laughs> I think people, uh, you know, react to my stuff well, and stores are beyond supportive, which is always nice because uh, the way comics works is, uh, is a, there's a very undue burden on stores to sort of trust in publishers and creators. And... Um, I feel that responsibility a lot, so I want to make sure that stores who trust in me and order my books uh, get their money's worth. Does that answer yep. your question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll say, you, I was going to, one second, as far as the marketing, like you put out one of the few items at New York Comic Con that I've ever like rushed to make sure to go get, which was the mixtape, which I thought was such uh, a cool, yeah. like absolutely had to, <laughs> you know, had to get it. Yeah. Um, the mixtape is not exactly a legal item, but, uh, (laughs) it was cool. I thought, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because comics is, uh, I think me and, and, uh, the guys at Black Mask, we, we all come from music backgrounds and (laughs) sorry, I have a probably notes. Um, so we come from music backgrounds, and I think in music there's a lot of, like I said, there's sort of a, a demand to sort of find cool angles and marketing tools and neat things you can give people, and people really like that and celebrate that. And in comics, that is uh, something that has been, when it has existed in the past, has very much been milked to a point that like people really, some people really begrudge it. And so there's a funny, there's a weird line that like my books straddle because we do a lot of variant covers and, uh, you know, we try and make them cool and unique and, and fun. And we're never, we don't ever do the stuff where we're like, you know, you have to buy a thousand copies of a book. We don't do anything like that. Like, you know, if I had my way, all the variant covers would be three ninety nine 
like the same price as the book. They're just a different cover. And we do it to support stores. Like that's how we do it as store exclusives. But, you know, I view all this stuff as being like hands-on and boutique and working with stores and like for We Can Never Go Home, like I worked with a ton of artists who were my friends who I think are cool and I just wanted their name on my book and I wanted them to be involved in some way and I wanted a piece of art from them that, you know, was in in the world I created. And so, like, we did a lot of variant covers because they were selling. And there's a funny, like, there's this funny pushback that I never sort of expected where people were like, it's very predatory that, that you do this stuff. And and that really caught me off guard because I was like, oh, no, I don't expect anyone to b- try and get it all. And people were like, well, I am trying to get it all. And I said, well, no. Oh. Like, if you don't like it, if you don't like buying something, don't buy it. But there is this, like, very collector's nature built into comics, which, like, mm-hmm. unfortunately, I feel like we do sometimes tread the line of, like, we're not trying to take advantage of that. We're not trying to, like, make super rare books we're trying to make things that we think are cool and fun. And the problem is that some people are just like, I have to have all of it. And the people who enjoy it, it's great. And for the people who don't, it's terrible. And so there's a funny, weird middle point where like, you know, people talk to me about like the old, like foil covers of the nineties and like, you know, eight collect connecting covers with holograms and stuff. And I'm like, cool if you like it I don't know like if you don't you the story's the same inside like um so there's so there's this funny thing because we've sort of come to this area of comics that already existed but we've come there by a very different means which is just like like the mixtape we just wanted to make something that was cool and unique and different but now it's like, you know, a $60 eBay item or whatever, a $40 eBay item. And people are like, oh, you know, they were super rare and it's fucked up that you make something that's, I don't know if I can curse, but I just did. Sorry about Please. that. Yep. Curse is not what you fucking want. Yep. We're good to go okay, on that. Cool. Um, the, uh, you know, but people are like, you know, it's fucked up that you made something that's so rare and, and hard to get. And I was like, no, I just like wanted to make something that I wanted. <laughs> and so I made it like, um, so, so, it, so it is a weird, weird, uh, thin line, but yeah, I'm always sort of looking out for that. I think we're going to do something for four kids that I'm very excited about for San Diego, um, Comic Con that I think is going to be really cool and funny. And I already know that some people are going to be like, you need to make more of them. It's messed up that you only made this many. And it's like, I can't afford to make more of those. Like I'm going to make as many as I can afford to make. And, you know, I don't even have a table at San Diego. I'm probably going to sell them at the Mrs. Fields cookies and the like lobby of the, of the convention and just be like, here, Oof. I made these because I wanted them. So we'll see. Let me know where I need to be. I'll be there. <laughs> You've got one sold. I, I, uh, I really do like the idea. Uh, I don't actually have a badge to San Diego Comic Con this year. I didn't apply for one. I was like, I don't really go in that much. It's kind of unpleasant. Um, so I, so I am like very much considering just selling stuff right outside and just tweeting and posting like, Hey, I'm going to be outside or I'm going to be in the hotel, this hotel lobby from these hours, like having my dinner. If you want to get this four kids thing, just come find me and you know, I'll give you one. Uh, I don't know if I'm a big enough star to make that work. And by that, I did that. I want to say Steve Niles did that where he like just showed up at a bar and was like, I'll be here from this point to this point. Come and grab a drink with me if you want, like screw the convention. Yeah, yeah. I know Temple Smith did it, and I think Steve's done it. And I, yeah, yeah. 
uh, a bunch of a bunch of uh, people who are much more famous than me can do stuff like that, and people want to do it. Whereas I'm just going to be at you know the burger place I like and selling coffee while I drink a milkshake. Um, I don't know that I'm going to do that. We might actually go a more proper route, but I do have a thing that I'm I'm hoping that people dig for for kids for San Diego and. We're trying to figure out if we can make it now, so it'll be fun or it'll be a disaster. We'll see. Well, I would be um, remiss to not bring up one of the sequences from We Can't Go Home that's kind of become a legend in its own right. Uh, you have our two protagonists um, going to try on potential superhero costumes for the superpowered female character in the story. And you basically send up like all of the standard superhero costumes and essentially just have her show how farcically ridiculous they are. And I know I've seen the sequence um, referenced in other comics as a result. Uh, I think it actually like got straight up press coverage. It certainly got lots of love from like the, all the like women uh, who I know in the comics world. And I would love to hear like your process for coming up with that and, what your experience has been like making this thing, which has been so applauded by, by, by uh, activist people and may have gotten some dick bags angry. I'm, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. Um, uh, we can never go home. It's like, uh, if people don't know, it's, it's a teams with superpowers book, but like, I like to think that it's a little more grounded than, than some of the other super teams with superpowers books that exist. Um, and so, yeah, in issue three of the book, they, uh, they, she needs clothes and they're going to go around and be, they're going to be robbing people. And so he suggests, Duncan suggests to Madison that, uh, you know, she tries on things at the local Walmart to see what would be a good, like, way to signal <laughs> that she is someone with superpowers, um, and so it's Halloween, and so she's trying on Halloween costumes is what they are, but they're, you know, they're remarkably similar costumes to some very big uh, superheroines, as it were, and uh, for legal purposes. And, yeah, I mean, we just wrote it to sort of be tongue-in-cheek and, and funny and uh, it, sort of as a way to signal that, like, yeah, we we like superpower. We like superhero comics. Like me and Josh both love them and and care a lot about superheroes and you know big two superhero books. But we also that's not what our world is. And and we wanted to just shorthand that and say like, what is a what is a quick and sort of funny way to be like, <clears throat> you know, this isn't going to turn into the X Men. This isn't going to turn into you know, Batgirl or anything like that. That's not, you know, that's not our world. So I wrote that scene and uh, I sent it to Josh to draw and he was like, I don't understand. Like, do you actually want me to draw these costumes? And I was like, you know, pretty close, yeah. (laughs) Um, And we didn't tell Black Mask for a long time that we were doing it Um, (laughs) because I was worried they would be very annoyed. And uh, we sent it in to Black Mask when the book was ready to go to print, and they were just like, I mean, Black Mask is funny because they like to push buttons and sort of be in people's spaces about stuff. So whereas I thought, we actually wrote, the scene is actually written so that 
you can take those two pages out and they don't, it wouldn't affect the story um, because I thought we were going to have to pull them at the last minute. And, uh, you know, to their credit, Black Mask was like, I don't know, maybe we're going to get sued. Let's see what happens. Like, this is funny. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of publishers who would do that. And that sort of uh, is very indicative of, of why I love them. But the, uh, yeah, the book came out and, and sort of a lot of people messaged me about it. And then like three days after it came out, it sort of hit Tumblr, the sequence. And then it was just this huge, like people calling stores and stores, you know, stores were like, I took 10 copies and it's sold out now. Can I get 400 and stuff like that where we were just, you know, couldn't meet the demand. And uh, Bleeding Cool actually ran an article about it and said, you know, this this is not ever going to be reprinted like this. They'll get sued if it's reprinted. So get your first print now because they're going to have to take it out. And they didn't get that from us. And we we never said that. Yeah, so they weird... print a lot of rumors and things that are untrue and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, you know, the uh, Bleeding Cool is you uh, probably. <laughs> yeah, this time. Yeah. Yeah, Bleeding Cool is a, it's you know, it's a news and gossip site, and they, uh, and our 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 story straddled the line, and they, uh, you know, Rich said, you know, it's probably I don't even think it was Rich, I think it was Hannah, um, but ran that thing saying it wasn't going to be published again because we were going to get sued. And we had a very weird conversation because we had to send the book back to second print. And, uh, you know, I talked to Matt at Black Mask, and he was like, well, what do we do? And I thought he was saying, like, if we do it again, we're going to get – if we reprint it, we're going to get sued. Like, now, they, now they'll have noticed, what do we do? But that wasn't what he was saying at all. He was saying, like, oh, you know, a lot of people just went out and bought this book because they thought it was going to be rare. And it's like – if it's not, that's sort of a bummer for people who went out and, like, bought it, which I thought was an interesting take, and it was not something that had occurred to me that, like, you know, there were people who definitely bought it because they saw an article saying that this will never be reprinted like this. So we scrambled, and I rewrote the sequence, and Josh scrambled and redrew it. So in the second printing of the book, uh, all the costumes are different. It's all different characters. Um which I think really shocked people that we like went around again and and messed with the same people. Uh, but you know, the big two don't care. Like it's it's parody and it's satire and it's done with love and and they know that and and it's legal. <laughs> it's uh, uh-huh. I mean it's it's legal satirically. So so we never got sued or anything. People always think we did and we didn't. Um, so there are two different versions of the image. The one, the one that I always see online is is the first one, but the reprint has all different costumes, but the uh, and sort of different jokes about them. But, exactly. Um, the the funny thing is that like, I mean, like I said, we're big fans of it uh, of of that stuff, and we just sort of wanted to signal that like, you know, I think I think most fans of superhero comics or a lot recognize that like they're ridiculous and the sort of like teenage sexuality of them is ridiculous. And the, the, you know, it's, it's absurd. And like the costumes that female characters wear are, are, you know, impossible and nonsensical. And, you know, most of us have acknowledged that and sort of moved on and that's just sort of what they wear. But I wanted to make it clear that that wasn't what our characters wear and that's not who they would be if they could. 
But more than that, the the thing that's funny is that people are always like, a lot of the negative comments we got, and when there are articles, there's always people being like, you know, oh, these guys, like these indie comics guys think they're so cool, and they, uh, you know, they're too cool for Marvel and DC. And I was like, I was writing an issue for Marvel at the same time, and like, that was one of the happiest, you know, days of my life when I got to write an issue for Marvel. Like, I wrote Captain America and Storm. It was like, you know, one of the best, like, literally one of the best moments of my life. So all these people just assuming that, like, because I'm commenting on something and acknowledging that it's absurd, that it comes from this place of hatred, was very weird to me. But the other thing that's funny is that, like, it's not all big two superheroes, and there's, like, a lot of just my favorite stuff in there. There's a Love and Rockets reference, and there's a Straight Bullets mm-hmm. reference, and, uh, you know, Tank Girl, and just, like, a lot of the indie stuff that, like, doesn't follow this, you know, you can't criticize for the same reasons you'd criticize, like, a Marvel book or a DC book in terms of, like, the presentation of characters. And, like, we're making fun of that stuff, too, and just, like, poking fun of it because it's all stuff that we love. And all the all the weird, very angry dudes who, who came at me and would comment on articles saying that, you know, we, we thought we were too cool for you know, Batwoman or too cool for Storm or or Phoenix or whatever character. I was like, but we put Amy Racecar in there and that's like one of my favorite characters of all time. Like we're not it's not done with any sort of hatred at all. But it is it is interesting because I think there's a lot of you know, people people extract things from from context and put it on the internet and then people comment on that with no context and like Obviously, people on the internet go a little crazy. So I think you know the people who are very angry and upset by the sequence in "We Can Never Go Home." Like our book's a love letter to superheroes in a lot of ways, and people just sort of assumed that it was making fun of them and it, and really angry at them, and it's not the case. So I kind of don't pay attention too much to the people who are really upset, but uh, it does make me chuckle sometimes. I mean, the read that I had and that a lot of the folks who I was talking with had was that that was anti-superhero, that it was celebrating superheroes, but that it was sending up the sexism that is represented in a lot of the costumes. And I was like, definitely sort of like, yeah, but Love and Rock doesn't like that. So it was sort of not like a one-to-one yeah. kind of a thing. But yeah. like you can I mean, poke at like how some of those things don't really work, and but it doesn't mean that you're saying that you have a problem with superheroes, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the... the y- yeah, that's exactly right. But I, th- I think there's a way to comment on things without totally condemning them and to, like, point out the absurdity in them. And, like, quite frankly, if you're an adult and you're reading superhero comics and you don't see an absurdity to that, like, <laughs> you, you, I, don't, I, I just don't really know what to do for you. Like, you shouldn't read my book because, like, we don't see eye to eye on too many things because, like, I love superhero comics and they're obviously absurd. And, like, you know, they're social commentary and satire themselves in a lot of ways. And like, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's just the sort of inherent 50 years of very much like superhero comics being such a boys club and like such a juvenile boys club at that, that like, yeah, the costumes are ridiculous. Like the, the fact that everyone is just wearing like skin tight spandex that doesn't match even the laws of spandex, uh, are very absurd and we can acknowledge that. And it doesn't mean that I don't think like 
Brooks is an, an awesome character because she is. I, you know, I love Storm so much, and she's an amazing character and like a huge influence on my life mm-hmm. and and the things I believe in. But it's also like insane that she just you know was wearing a two top and a leather vest for four years of my childhood like that's just such a bizarre outfit to put a character in and be empowering them at the same time and like that sort of weird dichotomy is is definitely right for mocking but it's not done with you know vitriol I you know but if people want to take it that way that's fine they can keep reading their superhero books and and there's stuff out there for them. I mean, that's the end of oh, the yes. day. Oh, like, yes, most of it, as much as they'd like to protest yeah. otherwise. Uh, did you feel like yeah. the, that the whole thing on Tumblr was, like, really helpful for the book sales? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, I mean, it was not uh, – Black Mask always, always talks about how uh, how lucky I am because I, I – you know, I think a lot of people who – saw it on Tumblr and were like, I'll check this out, seemed to actually gravitate towards the book. And I think it is sort of, uh, you know, uh, a different take on, on young, young people with powers. And I think it is sort of like in some ways a more empowering take, um, than, than not tradition, a lot of traditional superhero stuff is maybe. Um, and so a, a lot of those people who checked it out seem to respond and like it and get sales and black mask. is always like, Oh, you know, they used to be like, tease me for being like so Machiavellian and scheming that and I said I didn't know it was going to be on Tumblr like I didn't put it up on Tumblr and I didn't like you know post it or tweet about it or anything it's just a scene in my book that I thought was funny and you know when we started working on four kids they were like what are you going to do now like sort of teasing me about like what what viral sort of uh imagery are you going to put in your book to make it a hit on Tumblr and and stuff and it's like if I could do that consistently, I would be a lot more successful than I am. So, uh, but yeah, it, it had a really positive effect, and I think uh, that's awesome. It's awesome that there's a community of people out there like uh, sort of sharing stuff that they think is neat, and it's very. I'm very touched that something I wrote is something they think is neat, and if it can, and if the whole story connects with those people afterwards, like that's great. I'm, you know, really honored that it does for some people. And that's, uh, you know, more than I can ask for, certainly. So. Well, there's a, a series that's coming up that I, I want to ask about because there's, there's actually one question I've got a huge, um, you know, I really, really want to ask. So you're going to be doing a Civil War II tie-in that's focused on the Kingpin. Like, how did you come about working on that series? Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm very excited about that as well because uh, – I love the Kingpin. I think he's one of the great sort of modern characters and in all of fiction I think he's a really, really sort of fascinating character. Uh but I did uh I did a couple things at Marvel last year. I did a Secret Wars tie in. Uh, I did an X Men story um for Secret Wars Journal and then I did a uh one shot of Quake from uh Shield, the Shield Agent Quake. Um, it was a single issue. So I've been talking to Marvel about doing other stuff and uh, just sort of pitching them ideas. And, you know, I kept sort of going back to, like, I really want to work with the darker characters and the villains, and I think that there's a, some really cool stuff there. And, I, you know, I pitched a couple things that were just villain books. And, you know, they I, I sort of got a, like, this is cool, but this isn't the right time for that right now. And 
when when Civil War came around, uh, they dusted off my old stuff and and said, you know, like, well, what, what do you think? And so I had a, you know, I had this thing that I thought fit perfectly, and and with Civil War and and Will Moss, who's my editor, and is, you know, one of the best editors in comics, and edits, you know, the Vision and Squirrel Girl and and just like all the Marvel books that I can't wait to read, uh, was cool enough to like my stuff. And <laughs> yeah, I just had this sort of idea that like, uh, civil war is, is a war between, you know, the good guys and, and the Kingpin is just the most opportunistic character in the Marvel universe. He will take advantage of any angle and every opening that he can. And so my, idea was just that he's, you know, a civil war profiteer and and yeah. this is just the story of like how he <laughs> moves and what he does and how he operates when the heroes are at war with each other and how he takes advantage of that. And and they really responded to that and so yeah, that's what the story is. It's a four issue mini series starting in July. Um Ricardo Lopez Ortiz is drawing it, who is uh a New York guy and I think one of the best artists working in comics is his stuff is so cool looking and stylized. But I think a lot of times when you see comic art that's as like unique and stylized as his, people tend to sacrifice a lot of storytelling, but he's just a great storyteller in his work and does like his, his characters have such great performances and such humanity to them that like, I think people are, you know, really going to be blown away by his stuff and I hope that I can sort of keep up with that um, but you know you're going to see a Wilson Fisk kind of uh, running on all uh, all cylinders firing on all cylinders and, and going wild and that's uh, you know I, I hope that's something that people are into uh, it's, it's definitely the book that I would want to read um which is sort of always the avenue I try to operate in. And mm-hmm. I know that that's not for everyone, but I, I think the Kingpin is a cool enough character. And I think the way he fits into the story that like, if you're reading civil war, I think it's a cool different angle on civil war. And if you're not, it's just a crime story in the Marvel universe. And it's, it's really a dark, messed up, weird one. So I hope people give it a shot. It looks really interesting. All right, you guys should definitely think about getting it in the hands of people who are fans of the show of Daredevil because season one was such a kingpin focused season. Yeah. I know there's tons of people who don't read the comics, but who would be into that if it's accessible outside of, of Sesame yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely, uh, I'm rewatching Daredevil now. Uh, it's funny because I, uh, I got asked this in an interview the other day. They said, you know, how much influence did, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's kingpin have on, you know, your take on the kingpin. And it's funny because I I don't think really any, but I see all the stuff that D'Onofrio was influenced by and what the writers of Daredevil were influenced by. And that stuff has a huge influence on me. So I I think there will be touchstones for people who like the show because I think the show borrows really heavily from, like, obviously from, like, Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen, Daredevil, to, like, uh, you know, the the Brubaker stuff and and the Bendis Daredevil and, and, like, you know, there's a there's a lot of uh, really great Kingpin stuff that I think was very much in the DNA of the show, and I think is I'm trying to make sure is in the DNA of my book. 
So I'm hoping that people of the show will dig it. It's definitely not a wildly different take or, you know, you should be able to, if you like the Kingpin from just the show, pick it up and then get what's going on. Actually, uh, funnily enough, when I was still working at Forbidden Planet, uh, I, uh, in my last, got to be my last couple of weeks there, um, one of the new guys, who was working there, you know, came up to me and he was like, yeah, there's a guy who wants, is looking for Kingpin stuff. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, yeah, he's, he's doing something, you know, he's watching it for Netflix. And I was like, what? And he's like, he said something about Netflix. And I was like, what did he say about Netflix? And he was like, I don't know. He said he had to read it because of Netflix. And I was hmm. like, what does that sentence mean, man? And there's like <laughs> two other employees who are just staring at the, at this new guy I don't think so works there. Um, and he was just like, I was like, is the guy, because they just cast Vincent D'Onofrio. And I was like, is the guy Vincent D'Onofrio? And he was like, I don't know who that is. And I was like, Full Metal Jacket? He's like, I didn't see that. And people ah! started naming. Ugh. Yeah, no, I know. People just started naming Vincent D'Onofrio stuff. And he's like, I don't know. And then Tom was like, is it the guy from Law and Order? And he was like, yeah. Yeah, it's the guy from Law and Order. I was like, okay. And so I went and helped him. And I gave him all the uh, stuff that I think is the good, the best, best Daredevil Kingpin stuff. And so when people were like, "Oh, you know," when I got asked, you know, did, did D'Onofrio's Kingpin influence your writing of Kingpin? In the back of my head, I was like, "No, but I influenced D'Onofrio's Kingpin a little bit." Hmm. Um, not that I don't think he would have come across the the stuff I gave him anyway, but it is a funny little connection point there. Wow, that's wild. That's an amazing yeah. story. Also, but it shows you how imp- uh, I was just going to say that my favorite, uh, I don't know if it's my favorite single-issue comic of all time, but it's my favorite Marvel comic of all time. has Daredevil. It has Kingpin in it. It's a Daredevil issue with Kingpin. It's in uh, the first issue of The Return of the King in Brubaker's run. And I think it's like the perfect comic book. <laughs> so I feel really lucky to... Uh, to have the character, but I also feel like the weight of, of my favorite comic of all time being about the same character is like a little rough sometimes when I reread my script. I'm like, oh man, not going to live up to that. But but everyone should go out and read that. The Daredevil, the Brubaker Daredevil stuff is like some of the best Kingpin stuff that's ever been. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, I think... Um... You've also just told a story that really highlights the importance of hand-selling comics to people, you know? <laughs> yeah. The Internet can't yeah. really get that for you in those ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There was a, you know, working at a comic store, I'm sure this is true of everyone who works in comic shops now, but the, uh, to experience the, the heyday of people coming in and asking a ton of questions and asking for suggestions and writing them all down and then going to walk out and you being like, should I set these aside for you or anything? And they said, no, I'm just going to get them on Amazon. And so I was <gasps> like, oh, this is a weird. Oh yeah, it's very common. Um, yeah. It's a, it, and I I think that's a funny like, we're at a funny technological middle point of like, people still understand the need and importance of like, small business, but they don't understand the impact of not supporting it, and it's mm-hmm. like, you know. That I, I assume every comic shop across the country deals with that, and every record store, and every bookstore, and every whatever. But uh, it is—it was a very funny scenario that where it's like, yeah, 
that is the importance of hand-selling books and also the way it's going to die in one quick conversation. Even pre-internet, it was like that. Like The store I worked at was a game comic shop, and I used to have people, and we had a huge game space. Like Our game space was bigger than pretty much every other store and a couple of the stores combined in our area, and people would go to the other stores to shop and then come to our place to game and not buy anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, no, like... We have this so you can yeah. go and you know buy stuff and then go play it, not just go buy it somewhere else and come play it here. And like, you have to support us, folks. And then they all bitched when we we closed up. And I'm like, of course we're going to close. You're not supporting us. And I need a yeah. real career. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I everyone I know who's worked at the comic shops that have closed in in New York, all all my friends who worked in those shops were always like, yeah, you know. The people who are the most upset when when our shop closed were the people who come in and read all the books on the wall and then put them back and never bought anything and would come in every week <laughs> and was like, well. And obviously, you know, some people can't afford comics, and that's a nice thing about comic shops is that you can do that at a lot of shops, and it's nice for people who can't. But a lot of people, like, you know, when I was at Forbidden Planet and you see it at every shop in the city, there's a lot of guys in suits with briefcases who are just going to read comics for two hours and go home. And it's like, well, you should probably buy your books, man. Yeah. 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 It's fun. Yeah. It was fun. I would never, I wouldn't give up my working in a shop for anything. I Like, I to this day have bizarre stories. I always described it as a combination of, it was straight up clerks. Like, there were scenes yeah. out of clerks when I saw it. I was like, this is stuff we do. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, we used to close up the shop and go across the street to the record store and hang out for like two hours. And then you would look out the window, and there would be people like pounding on our door, being like, "Are oh you God. open?" <laughs> well, we the, the cool guy worked at the record shop, and they had video games, so we wanted to go hang out. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's it's funny. There's a, uh, especially the shop I worked at has sort of a long pedigree of people who uh, end up working in in comics and other in other fields. I know that like. Uh, my class of uh, of of coworkers, like one of them works at Fantagraphics now, two of them work at Valiant. Um, Tyler obviously does, you know, works on a book with me, but is also like does illustrations for Vice and is works on Lazarus and Image. And and uh, my friend Vita, who I'm co-writing a book with, who used to work there, like. She's about to have like a huge year and be a real breakout writer, and it's funny because it's like, you know, you you see the shop of just like these knuckleheads all like sort of joking around and being idiots together, and you know, selling comics and caring about it. But like, it's really nice to see those experiences sort of shaping people into people who stay in comics and and do things in comics, and, that, and that's like one of the things that I definitely wouldn't trade was like that and and even before you know there are a lot of marvel editors and dc editors and a lot of other people who've gone through the doors of forbidden planet as as staff so it's pretty cool um it's definitely a a good shop for both uh idiots who uh who don't take it too seriously and also for taking those idiots and forming turning them into uh passionate careerists which i like well, I'm extremely excited about Vita and what she has got coming up, and I'm sure that we'll get to drag her on here when that opportunity arrives. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she is. Uh, 
she doesn't have the workout now that people uh, can see, although me and her are doing a book together at Black Mask, but uh, reading her scripts and, and knowing the stuff that she's working on, like, I feel pretty confident in being like, yeah, she's probably going to be the breakout writer of 2017. Uh, if she's not, Thomas is really uh, asleep at the wheel because she is doing, like, awesome and important stuff that I think is very much uh, in need in the in the whole medium. So she's one I mean, to watch. And I'm not just saying that because we're writing a book together because that would be self-serving. But her other stuff you should buy as well. Absolutely. I mean, there are lots of ways, though, in which comics is completely asleep at the wheel and in ways that would make them less likely to do anything with, like, work created by, like, a, you know, a young queer woman of color. But um, yeah. hopefully, like, somebody doing something awesome can get noticed regardless of that. Yeah, so. for sure. I mean, I think it's a, it's a weird time because I think people, there are a lot of very cool people in comics who are cognizant of the ways that comics have been very... Uh, disproportionate towards, you know, straight white men for so long, and there are a lot of people who are working to change that. Not enough, and there's not not enough change going on. But uh, I think that, you know, people, you're starting to see people get the opportunities they deserve, and they're just going to be like, you know, so many amazing creators who are coming out who, like, wouldn't have been able to come out and do work 10 years ago, they just wouldn't have the opportunities and they wouldn't have the support network. And uh, that's really exciting and awesome. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Vita's definitely a writer who, uh, I was just going to say, Vita's definitely a writer who, you know, regardless of who she is, deserves to be, you know, on, on books at the big two and doing the indie books that you love, regardless of, anything else about her, but the fact that she is uh, a, a underrepresented voice in many ways in comics is, is even more inspiring. Absolutely. And I, I think that like you guys, what you're doing on the book are actually also part of it in an interesting way, because one of the things I first noticed looking inside four kids walk into a bank is that you have the creative team all credited in alphabetical order. Mm. Um, you have the flatter their name up there folks who don't yeah, know flatter is like an important step in getting the comics colored and like designed and you have the designer up there like you're not just celebrating the work of the writer and the penciler you're showing the whole crew of people creative people who make it possible yeah um you know i i understand why uh there's sort of system in place to be talking about you know writers and artists as the top bill and whatever and uh that's just not something that's super important to me. <laughs> um it's uh the book doesn't exist without um the five of us. Oh, I hope I got that number right. Me, Tyler, Claire, Courtney and Thomas. Uh yeah, five. Mm-hmm. Uh it doesn't exist without the five of us working together on it. And so um yeah, we're all uh we're all credited in alphabetical order just because I think it, you know, uh, I'm not judging other books for the way they do things. And I think the way they do things makes sense. And it, it, in some ways it makes it easier for a consumer, like to track down, you know, if you love, you know, creator a, and you know that their name will probably be first or second on the book. It's easy to see and follow their work. I don't, 
have enough fans and I don't do enough work that, that I need to go out of my way to do that. And uh, it, it's not important to me. It's not a it, it's not a pissing contest. I uh, me and Tyler worked on the book first. Uh, everyone else came on board. Um, we're super happy and thankful they did. They're all we're all parts of the same team. Uh, so yeah, we. Uh, I always find it weird. I understand why flatters often aren't credited on books. Um, but like, they're pretty much the only position on a book that tends not to be credited because like editorial and production and all those people are, and that sort of just always irks me a little bit. So I said, you know, from day one, I was like, I, I would like to create, credit my flatters going forward, or or rather Tyler's flatter because she works under him. There does, but uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a I think it's a simple thing for us. I don't. I don't expect other creators to make their books alphabetical. I don't necessarily think it's, you know, uh, some people really appreciate it. Uh, I had uh, someone tell me it was really stupid the other day. Uh, I thought that was funny. But, yeah, I just don't, uh, you know, I like to acknowledge everybody, and we all put in work, and I'm not going to say who put in more work or whose work is more important. I don't think it matters. Uh, You know, the colors on the book are awesome. I think there's a lot of reason you would buy mm-hmm. the book for the colors. Uh, Thomas is an amazing letterer. I think there's people who would buy it for the lettering, and I'm not going to sit here and be like, well, I wrote it, and I should be Todd Bell. And Courtney, who does the design stuff and does the wallpaper, like, to me, that's such a huge thing in the book. Like, you know, she does all the sort of, like, title page design, like the wallpaper stuff, and that's sort of recurring motifs in the book. And I think, like, whenever I think about the book, that's like one of the things that I'm like, that makes the book cool to me. Is <laughs> that there's like these recurring image motifs that are designed for the book. So like, Courtney's a huge part in why I think the book is cool, so she gets credit. And Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, if that's I a really all, neat. All... I like the wallpaper. They're really striking. I bet people could like use those prints on a lot of different kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, that would be awesome if they did. I mean, if Courtney's cool, I never talked to her about it. Um, but she's actually a, she's an awesome artist, and uh, that's the funny thing is that uh, Claire R. Flatter is also a very cool uh, artist. Um, but Courtney did uh, three variant covers for us. So when we did conventions, uh, Courtney drew the covers, and uh, they're, like, some of my favorite art associated with the book. So, like, yeah. I mean, she's just an important part. She always sort of tweets about the book, like, oh, I'm so proud of these guys. That's <laughs> where I was, like... I always sort of say to her, I'm like, it's your book too. Like, stop distancing yourself from it. She's like, let me be proud. <laughs> I'm like, all right, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, going forward, I would like all my books to be alphabetical. And credits just make sense to me. It's easy to find people that way. But uh, I don't always have a say. So I'm assuming that that won't be the case on a lot of things. But on my creator and stuff, it probably will. Unless someone has a really big problem with it. And I probably wouldn't work with people who did. So... Hmm. Very cool. I just, I definitely took that as a statement, you know, and I think it's for, great for all the reasons you line out. But I don't think I knew what a flatter was until about a year ago. And I've been reading comics since I was in junior high and like, I know how to draw. So that yeah. does something. Yeah, no, for sure. There, flatters are, you know, I mean, a lot of flatters are, are, uh, I mean, it's it's not a great paying job a lot of the time, and it's uh, and it's the foundation of the color in any comic you read. The the flatter uh, is 
you know, set dressing in a lot of ways. And so I think it's it's the uh, it's one of those things that I think more and more flatters are going to be credited. I think the flatters on Wicked and Divine are credited. I think someone maybe I don't know. I don't remember. There's some there's some big book, and I think it might be Wicked and Divine or Paper Girls or uh, where the flatters are credited. And it was funny because I was like, oh, I want to credit flatters, and then I noticed that afterwards, and I was like, oh, yeah. It just sort of makes sense to me, and it makes sense to someone else, obviously. Um, I think it's probably going to be a thing that in the future is a, it's commonplace. But, uh, yeah, flatters are very important. And if you want to uh, – and if you're out there and listening and you want to get into coloring, uh, study up on being a flatter and learn how to be a flatter. And, and you know, it's – a lot of flatters sort of work like apprentices for colorists. Um and uh, help guide the book and work under them and uh, work as sort of, you know, I don't want to say assistance because that's diminishing to what they do, but uh, they're they're sort of uh, in that capacity in a lot of ways. And I think it's a, it's a cool, uh, it's a cool job if an underappreciated one, but hopefully it won't be underappreciated forever. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, why do you, why do you think that they generally are overlooked? Like you you said, you, you you kind of had thoughts as to why they weren't usually credited. Um, a lot of flatters, I think, and I could be wrong, and I'm sure some colorists or people are gonna, can <coughs> correct me on the history of this, but I think a lot of flatters were. Uh, it's a I think it's somewhat of a newer phenomenon, uh, as colors became more nuanced in comics and moved away from. Uh, being having to be separated and being you know more four color process stuff and dots and things like that. Uh, I think flatters as colors became more complex. I think flatters became more common, and in that I think a lot of flatters were hired not by the editors or publisher or but hired separately by colorists. Is my understanding? Mm-hmm. I think they're they're yeah. brought in as like you know, brought in as assistance to colorists. And so since they're not a sanctioned team member on a lot of books, they've sort of, I think early on, they've sort of had that role ever since as being like, you know, I think I think they're weirdly treated like a dirty secret in comics, even though there's nothing dirty about it and it's not a secret. Like, <laughs> colorists use flatters. A lot of them do. Some don't. Some do. Um, but since they're not, you know, paid by a publisher, a publisher doesn't acknowledge them, and since the colorist is like, I think a lot of colorists early on were maybe like embarrassed and, you know, because people don't know what they do, and, and they think, you know, like, oh, you're a flatter, so you don't do any, you this person does your job for you, and it's like, no, they're very different jobs, and uh, and so I think there there was a lot of like weird stigma to being a flatter, which I don't think there should be, and I think I think that persists for those kind of reasons. I could be totally wrong, but that's sort of always been my understanding um, of the role of a flatter. But I think that, you know, people understand how comics are made much better now and people understand the, you know, the economics and the, the process of all these jobs much more thoroughly. And so I think there's a, uh, you know, it's a good time to acknowledge flatters and, and make them proper team members on, on any book. Ooh, I can get behind that. Yeah. So when are we going to get the next issue of, of, of your comic out? Uh, 
the next issue of Four Kids, uh, I don't. It's either going to be the 25th of May or the next week. It's supposed to be the 25th of May, but uh, the book sold out, which is awesome. And thank mm-hmm. you to everyone who bought it. Uh, but so we have to do a reprint, and because the process of printing books and getting them in the system is very slow, the reprint can't come out until the 25th of May. And uh, it's weird. I hear, you know, I talk to stores and I hear all sides. Nobody wants the reprint to come out after the second issue because then it's like trying to sell people the second issue and then say come back and buy the first, and that's very difficult. But I've heard a lot of stores tell me they don't like to have the two issues out at once. It's difficult for them to, like, that takes up a lot of space. It's it's hard to sell people. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of shops have trouble selling someone on something they never read. It's two issues at a time, so it's like by the first, and then they come back, and the second is gone. And so we may end up delaying the second issue a week so that people can pick up the reprint of the first issue. And yes, it sucks that people who went out and bought the first issue are uh, getting their book delayed for people who didn't, but. That's what life's like. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, uh, I, I uh, you know, I'm very sort of cognizant of, of people who are, uh, you know, very very enthusiastic about monthly books and and very very on board with that. And I try and make sure our books ship on time and are monthly. But there are reasons why they don't sometimes. And you know, you got to roll with the punches with comics. It's not a, you know, we're not carrying diseases. If it's, a, if it's a week late, it's a week late. But, yeah, either the 27th of May or June 2nd, 3rd, 1st, I don't know. I'm not going to do the math in my head right now. That's okay. The point is it's coming soon, but I cannot buy it in two days. So No. Okay. But I'm yeah, really looking forward to it. I just I had such a buzz reading off the issue, and I really – like just wanted to immediately explain why I was so happy to my dad and my dad really doesn't read comics. So I was like really trying really hard. Oh, thank you. That's, uh, that is nice. Uh, my, uh, my dad is a, like I said, is a writer. And so I, uh, I spent, I spent, uh, when I first tried to get into comics, I, uh, it was very important to me that my dad was into writing comics. It was very important to me that my dad and my mom were, supporters because they're both writers and I sort of wanted their their blessing and, and they were super unsupportive <laughs> and uh, they just did not want me writing comics and I went out of my way to, to get a bunch of comics to give to them and say like these are why I care about comics like these are the stories that made me want to do this for the rest of my life like can you just read them and, and like we discuss and uh you know, my dad read the stuff I gave him and, and I went out to dinner with him and he said, you know, I get it. What can I do to help you, you know, be a comic writer? And that's like a super important moment in my life. But uh, but now my dad is a big uh, comic fan, so that's very funny to me. Um, he doesn't ever go to a comic shop himself, but he's always just like, get me get me three books. And so, I'll, you know, if I, <laughs> if I know I'm going to go see my dad, I'll bring him like, you know, three trades of things that I think are cool or might be up his alley and stuff. And uh, so I appreciate when people are talking to their parents about my book. It's a it's a very funny uh, it's a very funny personal thing to me because of my relationship to my parents. I actually did a an in store uh, like a book club thing for We Can Never Go Home a couple of weeks ago for a very cool shop in Oakland called Cape and Cowell Comics. 
And, uh, you know, I had all these questions from the crowd, and, and like, it was a Skype video thing, and, and they were great and super awesome. And then the uh, the owner of the shop's dad was like, I have a question. And I said, yeah. And he said, I, I read your book. He said, I don't really get it. And I said, okay, what, you don't understand it? And he's like, no, it just didn't really, like, all these people seemed really enthusiastic, and it just wasn't really, didn't really do anything for me. Like, what am I missing? And I was like, I don't think you're missing anything. Like, you're a dude in your 60s reading comics about teenagers. I don't think that's really necessarily for you. And uh, it was a it was a nice moment because I think he uh, he was looking for me to, like, explain why he, the book was good to him. And instead I was like, it's not good for you. Like, not everything is for everyone. And, like, mm-hmm. if you didn't like it, enjoy the fact that you didn't like it. Like, you're not supposed to like everything. And, and, like, other people will like things you don't. And he seemed really like we had this long conversation in front of this entire comic shop full of people about that. It's and an important really, principle, though, you know? Like, it's actually a sound thing to do in front of a group of people regardless. Yeah, yeah. Um, it actually uh, – I tell the story sometimes, but the, uh, it was an interesting moment for me in, in, in realizing something that I understood – I understood intrinsically, but I didn't understand it, you know, uh, in actuality. And that's, I sort of, you sort of go through life if if you don't think about it, thinking that all bad artwork is, is a failing and is someone's failure or a lot of people's failure. And it, it took me a long time. It took me making comics to realize that, like, some bad artwork is intentionally bad, a lot of it, and it's striving to be bad and it's striving to be things that, like, I don't like and don't agree with. It's not all, I mean, like, on a broader scale, it's it's the, like, not everything is for you concept, which is, you know, everyone should understand that idea, but, like, on a basic scale, it's like, you go see a movie and you're like, oh, that was some big $100 million blockbuster, and I assume everyone who was involved in it hated it. But no, they probably really liked it. Like they probably thought they killed it at the end, and they did a great job. And I think once you realize that, like a lot of, at least for me, a lot of my anxiety about being like a comic creator and being someone who's putting, you know, my voice and my ideas out there, sort of dissipated. Like, you know, people come up to, in comics. There's a lot of people who are quick to tell you that they didn't like your book. And I have a lot of friends who are comic creators who take that really personally, and and like. I probably would, except I had this real, you know, come to Jesus moment of being like, oh yeah, bad things were designed to be bad. And like that sort of illuminated for me that like person who really hates my book, like maybe my book's bad. I don't know. I don't have perspective, but I like it. Okay. And if they don't like it, like that's okay. (laughs) Like, uh, and it, it really, uh, it's made me a lot happier as a comic writer to, to sort of, you know, not have to sit there and explain to people why they don't understand my work and, like, read negative reviews and be like, oh, they didn't get it. Like, I read negative reviews, and I, I try and take the criticism to heart and sort of, like, acknowledge it and think about what it means. But sometimes it's just like, oh, that's something that's meant for them. That's not, like, this critic or this fan or whatever. I didn't write the book for them. I wrote it for the person who loved it, and I wrote it for myself. So, yeah sort of a, a big uh, a big moment in my uh, being able to be a comic writer was being able to shrug off people hating my stuff. 
I mean, it's not as bad. I've had so many strange conversations. Well, actually not conversations. I've had so many strange online interactions with writers who like, or, or artists who it's sort of like, I'll have a very positive review of their book, but I'll have raised a couple of like serious critiques. And because I said anything like critical at all, even though I overall gave it a good evaluation, like we'll like not share the review that I did. And yeah. I'm like, you are out of your mind. Like, it's a stupid, I'm sorry. Like, it's just stupid to not to do that. Yeah. You know? I, mean, I think it's, you know, uh, it's, it's weird. It's different for everybody. I mean, I know, I know people who just take this stuff really personal and, and like any criticism like hits really hard for them. And, and like, I get that. I, I, I understand. Like I'm very self-conscious about my work and very, but I'm, I'm, I come from a, the opposite place in a lot of ways because I really good reviews make me uncomfortable when I read a really good or, or glowing review. I get very like, I don't know. It it makes me like I can't finish them. I can't read them. They find they make me uneasy, and like the nastiest criticism of my work, I'm always like, that's interesting, and like I disagree with some with sometimes, but I I don't have a problem acknowledging it. But I know a lot of creators who are exactly the opposite. Who like any time people are like I liked it, but as soon as the but comes, they just don't want to hear it, and it's very uncomfortable for them. I mean, you know, if a uh, uh, like I said before, like writers are very, you know, have to be both very uh, full of themselves and also insanely self-conscious about themselves. And and like, you know, depending on on what time of day and what the weather is like, you could get, I think, most writers on either side of the fence. So, but yeah, I think I think it's important to uh, to sort of acknowledge criticism of your work. I don't think. You know, unless you're one of those people who really wants their work to exist in a vacuum uh, and just doesn't care and does it for themselves entirely. If I was doing things that really bothered people, I'd want to know, you know. Um, I might still do them because if it felt important to me, I might, you know, but I, I definitely would want to know before anything else. Um, I actually had a, a reviewer who uh, hates my stuff so much like on such a fundamentally sound level. And wow. I read his criticism and his criticism was like it, he criticized Weekend Ever Home and was so like the definitely the worst review I've ever had until he reviewed Four Kids and then that was definitely the worst review I've ever had. Um and I've written much worse stuff than We Can Ever Go Home and Four Kids. So like that that was a that says a lot. And and I read it, and his criticism is really good and really sharp and really on point and, like, well-reasoned and smart. And I read them and was just, like, I was totally fine with them and was just, like, okay, that's cool. And then I just had that weird self-conscious voice in the back of my head where I was, like, does he dislike me for some reason? Like, is this personal? And, and like, I wanted to reach out just because I was worried that I'd, like, been a been a jerk at a comic convention or like said something online that rubbed him the wrong way. Not because I disagree with the criticism, but because I was like, Oh, I think I might've offended this person like in some way. And that's obviously like partially my ego being no one can really dislike my work that much. So I didn't reach out to him. And, and I also didn't want to be like in any way invalidating his criticism or like make it seem like I was doing some sort of attempt to like stifle him by making him uncomfortable by like, you know, calling into question his ethics on his review and that was not my intention at all but I had this like 
moment of like this very odd moment of both self-confidence and self-doubt where I was like, I think I bothered him in some way because this is, this feels almost personal. And then I was like, no, I didn't bother him. He just really doesn't like my writing. And that totally makes sense to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I get it. Reviews are, uh, they're, uh, they're tricky. You know, I've been, I've been very lucky. People, people are, are pretty positive about, uh, the things I write that I really care about, which is nice. Um, you know, I've done a couple of things in my career that I think are like, you know, I've not done anything for a paycheck, but I've done things that are not like, they don't feel important to me. And I've had people be like, this is not important. And I'm like, yeah, it's not important. It's like, you know, a comic, if you're a fan of this character or this person or whatever, you can read it. Um, but the stuff that feels important to me for the most part is just, you know, has resonated with a, a group of people who have felt it was important and that's nice. So, uh, I think if the shoe was on the other foot and people hated my work, I might have a very different view of criticism than I do. So I, I can't really say. I don't have the perspective on that. But but just the fact that somebody would take the time to write something about what you thought you were doing well and offer, like, thoughts about, like, what would be better, like, it shows that they're invested in your work. You know what I mean? For sure. And you see all of oh, these, yeah. like, 10 out of 10 reviews that don't even justify why something gets a 10 out of 10. And it's like not even putting a lot of effort or respect to the work in the first place, frankly. So, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, there's lots of trolly stuff and I completely get, believe me, like you don't have any obligation to engage with any of that. And there's the whole factor of like, it's not everything is for everybody. And like, if, if you're writing for like, you know, a young audience and somebody who's very old school doesn't like it, like maybe you're doing something right. But, yeah. you know, I just have to question like, why you would not want to promote somebody who's talking about positive things that you've done because they have some thoughts that are like, yeah, however, da, 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 da. like apparently that's enough to make it not useful for, yeah, for you. For sure. I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely weird, but um, I mean, I'm, I'm very, obviously there's, you know, however many, a hundred comics come out every week on average or whatever it is, 120, 85, whatever it is. It's a lot. And so, <clears throat> Anybody who takes the time, I mean, I know, I know what comics writers are paid, so I certainly understand that comics journalists are paid <laughs> even worse. Um, so the fact that people take the time to like talk about the stuff is like, you know, that deserves a lot of respect and admiration, even if I think they don't like your work. Um, I mean, obviously there are people who come at you know to vitriolically damage people and whatever, and there's people with agendas, but that is certainly not the norm, and I think most comic critics, the overwhelming majority, are, are doing it for love of the medium and wanting to talk about the medium, and even if they don't love your work in the medium, like, that's deserving of respect, and, like, it's part of a bigger community that we're all a part of, and, like, yeah, you should be promoting journalists who talk about your stuff. Um Sorry to turn this into like something about me and my problems, but I was <laughs> oh no, I mean I think it's a yeah, I think you know it's comics. It's uh, it's all of our problems all the time. Is <laughs> the is it's the fun thing about comics is that it's so small that like everybody, any problem is everybody's problem in a lot of ways, which is uh, both horrifying and very comforting. Hmm. I think one of the most awkward things I've had at a convention was a creator coming up to me and. Uh, 
a friend introduced us, and he's like, oh, I know you. You totally, like, tore apart my comic. And I'm, like, thinking in my mind, what the hell did I write? And, like, what yeah. did I do? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I see, that, see, it's funny because I could see myself saying that to someone, being like, oh, yeah, you tore apart my book. But I wouldn't do it in, like, an aggressive way. I'd just be like, oh, yeah, you didn't, you know, like, just to just to say it. But I guess that is an awkward thing to say. Well, but, the... like while he said it, it was he was shaking my hand and let's say his grip got way tighter. Oh <laughs> yeah, okay. It, yeah. it was complete like uh, um I I'm like three times the size of you, you little you know, you little shit. Yeah. You tore my book apart. I'm like, eh, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Awkward. Yeah, yeah. That that that's not a good one. <laughs> that's not a good yeah. position to be in. I think uh, I just laughed and I was like, I don't know what I say. I read way too much and whatever yeah. and i just kind of laughed it off and it it is funny because there's always there's always the debate on like where journalists sort of talk about like you know uh critics uh creators always say like you know in don't tag us in negative reviews don't you know that's rude and and whatever and i tend to think like i, I don't really care i'm not going to retweet like an overwhelmingly negative review of my book because that's just not point of my twitter no. but like yeah <laughs> uh, uh, you know like I, I i like to know that it's out there but the funny thing is like i hear a lot of reviewers and stuff say well we want you know we want you to know that we talked about the book or we covered it or whatever and i i remember uh my buddy chris sabella who's a, a great great comic writer said once he was like journalists like we know we know when you talk about us like we're very aware <laughs> We're Googling ourselves all the time. We're Googling our work all the time. You don't need to tag us. Like, we know as soon as you talk about us that you talked about us. And it's true that, like, most of the writers I know, like, you know, have Google alerts and, and like, search for their books on Twitter and Tumblr and Instagram and all that stuff. And it's like, you know, sort of you take the temperature of the room all the time when you put something into the room. And uh, that's just a funny thing that, like, to say, you know, oh, I know you, you, you gave my book a review. Like, when I talk to someone, when I meet someone at a convention, like, I don't always acknowledge that I know who they are as far as a journalist. But, like, if they talk about my work, I probably do. <laughs> you know, I probably at least glanced at it. it. You know, it was sent to me. It was, you know, it went, it passed through my inbox at some point. Um, and that's, you know, I don't think there's a, an overwhelming need to <laughs> to acknowledge the relationship there, but it is a it is a fun sort of unspoken thing. I think for a lot of people where they're like, Oh, our, you know, reviewers or journalists say like, Oh, I reviewed your book or whatever. And a lot of creators are like, Oh, I didn't know. And it's like, yeah, you did. You definitely knew when he reviewed your book or see reviewed your book. I mean, Tell that's my I'm, sense of it. I'm not even a writer and I've got a Google alert set up for my name. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I can't have a Google alert set up for my name because I have such a common generic name. That, like, Many of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the Google Earth for my name just covers the uh, New York Times reporter, the Afghanistan reporter named Matthew Rosenberg. Like, he has a much more interesting life than me and puts out much more important work. So the Google alert that I used to have for my name was just like, I just end up reading the New York Times a lot. <laughs> I just read about what was going on in Afghanistan. And I was like, okay, this isn't helping my productivity at all, so I shut it off. Well, you just have to have it to have the word comics. You can put it in a binary yeah. down, but so that, so that it only includes the word comics. Yeah. The uh if something important happens, uh Black Mask will tell me. 
There you go. <laughs> or, or Marvel, or whoever, whoever's publishing my work will uh, let me know if uh, you know I really offended someone or I did something. You know, if I win a Pulitzer Prize, someone will someone will email me. I don't think I'm going to though. So I think I'm pretty much clear on that. Well, we've had you for for quite a while on the show, and, and beyond appreciate it. Um, you know, as we wrap up, we always give creators. Uh, a chance to throw out where folks can follow them online. So a, a nice transition from there. So where can people tag you and and uh, connect uh, with you online? Um, yeah, if you want to tell me uh, how I talk too much in interviews, um, the, uh, my Twitter is Ashcan Press, A-S-H-C-A-N-P-R-E-S-S. And that is also a Facebook page and a Tumblr and I guess an Instagram, all this social media stuff, and the website and my emails on the website if you need something from me. And, yeah, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I try and uh, if, people, if people have something to say, I'm, I'm always happy to listen or chat about stuff. Uh, I'm not as good on the social media as I should be, but I, uh, I do my best. And uh, thank you for listening to me. I guess. Well, we, well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I mean, yeah. We've been so excited about these books. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. I uh, I do like, uh, although this was about uh, as apolitical a discussion as you could be, I do think uh, <laughs> graphic policy is a, is a really important site, and what you guys do is really, you know, I, uh, I'm a big fan of, of saying that comics need to be more political and more socially conscious. Uh, across the board, and I think like the comics I grew up on and the comics that are super important to me are comics that say something more than just a story. They have a message and a meaning behind them, and I think like when we talk about sort of why comics are more marginalized now, I think a lot of that goes back to losing a lot of their political relevance and social commentary in a lot of ways, and I think a lot of the comics that people like really gravitate towards and these days are comics that are really about something bigger than just a story. And so not to just sit here and blow smoke up your all asses, but uh, having graphic policy be a place that talks about, you know, both the political and social climate of comics, but also larger scale of politics and comics and where those things meet, I think is really important. I think it's something that people need to focus more on. So I was very excited to be on the show and then make it completely apolitical and talk about child <laughs> bank robbers. It's all political, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> so yeah. thank you for joining us again. And no, thank we you. Will, we will see you in the store perhaps next time you visit. And yes. Yeah, and hopefully I'll catch you in San Diego. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'll, be at, I'll be at the Mrs. Field. Take care. I love it. Good Good night. Take care. Night. All right. Uh, Well, we went for a very long time again. We seem to have like these really nice marathon discussions with people uh, for interviews. I I would love to hear from myself, a podcast listener. I no problem at all with long podcasts in the slightest. I would be curious from our listeners if you guys have issues with that. Like, send us a message. I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, we only have the metrics we get to see, so decent amount of Text jokes are listening all the way through. Yeah. 
Yeah, text uh, message tweet at us. us know. Thank you. Yeah, don't text message me. You don't have my freaking <laughs> number, General American Public. Do not. I but, don't uh, need more text messages. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. I'm curious. And that was awesome. So uh, folks should go absolutely check out uh, We Can Never Go Home, which should be in trade paperback. Uh, if not, grab single issues if you can find them. And then Four Kids Walking Into a Bank, uh, a second printing will be out in a few weeks if you can't get a first printing. And I think we both highly recommend it. Um, very, very cool uh, new series. Um, so, yeah, thank you as always uh, to our guest, um, Matthew Rosenberg, who is the writer of both. And um, you can check out his stuff. And all the stuff in Black Mask is really, really cool. Um, it's a great indie uh, publisher. So yeah, let's uh, wrap up another marathon episode, and we. Will and next week back. we're going to be taping on Tuesday and Monday. Yes, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Because <laughs> I was about to say, catch us next Monday. Oh wait, we're not. Uh, yeah. So next Tuesday, and we will have that episode up uh, later this week on Blog Talk Radio, and then for those who came in late or want to listen to this again or share it with their friends. Um, it will be up on iTunes and Stitcher later this evening and then be posted up on SoundCloud tomorrow and on our site, which is graphicpolicy.com. Um, of course, we've got interviews and reviews and all kinds of stuff every single day at the site. So come check us out if you enjoyed this radio show. But as always, thank you for listening. And until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.